Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, a recording taken from the launch of poet Michael Farrell's new collection, Google Collier. One of the country's foremost poets, Michael Farrell opens a door and invites the reader to step beyond the threshold of disbelief into a new and dazzling world. The title of this collection alludes to the range of emotional effects and feelings that the internet produces. Pleasure, satisfaction, joy, melancholy, anxiety, schadenfreude, boredom, nausea. I was delighted to host Michael at Readings Carlton for this event, and I hope you enjoy the recording of our conversation and Michael's readings of his work from Google Collier. Here's the recording. Good evening, everybody. Welcome, everyone, here to Readings Carlton. My name's Nico. I'm one of the events team here. I'm at a bookseller here as well. I'm really glad to be able to have you all here tonight. Before we get going with the event tonight and before I introduce our guest, I would like to take a moment or a minute to acknowledge and reflect upon how this is stolen land. This is Kulin country and the people who were here long before us were the Wurundjeri Wurrung people and I'd like to pay my earnest respect to the elders of the past and those of us here today and those who will come in the future and lead us through truth-telling, reconciliation into a better future. And if there are any First Nations people here with us tonight, I'd like to acknowledge your presence as well. And I hope that perhaps by doing this event, it's a small part of our work here towards that process of truth-telling and reconciliation. So thank you. I'm really, really glad to be able to welcome our guest here, Michael Farrell, for the second event of the year that we've done here at Readings Carlton. I think I'd like to start off the conversation tonight with a reading, Michael, if you'd like to, from this new volume, Google Collier. Thanks. Thanks, Nico. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Some faces I haven't seen for a few years. What are you going to read for us, Michael? I'm going to read this poem in the year of our modernism, 1922, which is a kind of mock tribute to my real grandparents. We tend to gender our grandparents more than we do ourselves. He dyes his hair. She has a more serious operation. They first start publishing things in Europe. There begin to be articles about them. They're always having rebirths, comebacks, cleansings. Some of the language seems very dated now, some offensively so. Did you really have a spider tattoo, my cousin Deborah asks, seeing our grandmother's scar one summer? We barely knew them. I think they didn't know each other that well. They seemed more affectionate than our parents, but actually more literary, self-consciously quoting things we didn't know were quotes. It might seem arch or precious, yet I think it was in some way meant as a keyhole to the past, their pasts, plural, a verbal equivalent to the music I'd play or food I'd eat when around them. I wasn't quoting anything I'd written, but what if I'd become a musician or food something? For example, saying that our only weapon was love or his announcing the story of the hand towel. When I watch movies about the 1920s, I feel no recognition. They were never married, never had anything as creepy as a patio. I think I get my narcissism from them. The way the colour of my skin falls away just under the cheek. What are you like colluding about now, my parents would say when they came to pick me up. 
quite disrespectful language now that I think of it. There will be time to unpick all their issues later on. In the year of our modernism, 1942, say, my grandparents would never do more than give my parents looks. They had had everything firsthand, or at least in a more immediate sense than my cousins. I. They'd waved on piers, seen food being made for prison visits. Not that my parents were siblings, but I have to conflate this a bit to get it all into one poem. Occasionally they get mentioned in the Northern Hemisphere, even now, but you'd have to go to a Wikipedia to know they were Australian. Or for empire, my grandfather would say, handing me a broom. Or my grandmother handing me an axe. Somehow she caught on to dead or alive's turn around, count to ten. When I'd never even heard her mention Josephine Baker or Liberace, or listen to anything pop. It was a sketch about their relationship. It's sad. Funny though that the song's more recent than the one we sang camping with my parents. Oh, Yoko. In the middle of a poem, I call their names. Norma, Harold. If it's sad now too, it is more loving. My grandparents lived under a pine tree called Needles Line Breaks. They lived by a river, were visited by ducks, fisherwomen. They didn't write anything there, as far as I know, apart from letters which were firmly set in the present. How much did you get for that, they might ask, if their correspondent had mentioned selling something. When I was 10, the stamps were exciting enough. Now they seem bland, kitschy. My grandfather spoke more, more in pastiche when he became widowed. Came down the Paris boulevards looking for a mouldy stick. Who would have thought the ladies would save the Jews from Patan? Guess they weren't so caricatural after all. They called even damper a stick or log of bread. Had cats called Salon, Mondrian. My dad once referred to them sarcastically as bush Parisians. Yet I think they really only pass through. What's a year in a long life? My grandmother talked more about TB, tuberculosis, than any war, but I guess she was more careful than she seemed. I have her mother's portrait of her at 18, looking witty, cranky, some kind of campaign in mind. She was briefly famous for a Hemingway parody called Nursing a Boxer. I found her copy of A Farewell to Arms on a shelf, looking half red. Later I associated him with Kirsty McColl's Walking Down Madison, as if the distance from anyone's birthplace, Oak Park, Illinois, to that of death, Ketchum, Idaho, or in her case, Croydon, UK, to Cozumel, Mexico, is not that far. Thanks, Michael. I take away from reading your poetry, Michael, be it this volume or ones from the past, that you approach these situations of poignancy and delicacy and then you slip into that mode of slight little witty turns of phrase here and there. 
I think that's something that really comes through a lot of your poetry. But I think this one's quite different. And I'm sure those of you here tonight, if you do grab a copy of this one, you will see just what I mean in that I would say this collection is more poignant and more witty than the previous ones, somehow managing to stride both at the same time. I would like to know a bit more about the process that went into these poems. And I understand that they're from several years' work combined in different ways. What did strike me about reading the opening notes and the acknowledgements was that a lot of these poems were written in China in various settings. Would you be willing to talk about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, a few, anyway, um, were written in China. I had a residency in northern China in Jilin um, in 2018 for two weeks and it was a bit of a funny situation. We were sort of touring around on buses and then we're sort of having an interesting time but then at the end they would go, okay, we're stopping in this hotel and now you've got free time and you can just write and that was kind of depressing, I suppose, and <laughs> we felt... It was a bit like... It was a bit like lockdown. <laughs> we're just, like, in this hotel. I forgot what I was talking about. OK. No, go off if you like. So I, wrote, I did write one poem called Ghosts there that was sort of... I think it was partly just inspired by being... Like, being in snow. Yeah, early October. And I grew up in a, an occasional snow town. So, yeah, we were just sort of, like... We are kind of a bit snowbound, but we just, like, walk around the forest near that hotel and um, yeah there were like little owls and things and I don't know I can't remember what's in the poem but I think things like that come through and then I was in Shanghai after that and yeah writing Goethe and um, see my memory has gone <laughs> Goethe was not a clue <laughs> um, but there was a ginkgo tree in the gardens of the last emperor's palace in China and I'd been reading this book about Goethe meeting this woman under a ginkgo tree while I was there. So, I mean, it's like it's kind of as much comes from my reading as where I am, even though I was reading Chinese texts in China, but I was writing about Skelton and Goethe. Would you be willing to read one of the poems from your time there, if you'd like? Maybe The Greater Goethe? Sure. Greater Goethe. <laughs> we are mites in the eye of Goethe. Sometimes unsure which eye, as if they go straight through his head like tunnels. Goethe is often absent to himself, off in other regions, not of empire, but rather of a worldwide salon. If possible, he has become a symbol of welcome. We animate his eyes when he's away. We have direct access to his brain. Yet the thoughts or waves we experience are too broad to mean anything to parasites such as us. It's enough to have our task. We are not experts. We barely, admittedly, know our host or where he is or we are. Leaves fall like fish. The publication will not take place. Look closely at the wax statue's eyes and discern the eyes of Goethe. Thanks, Michael. I'm sure there's something Chinese in there, but I, you know, it's been dissolved. That makes me think because there are so many illusions or direct evocations of literary figures, poets, of, you know, grand stature within the canon. And I know from 
family trees that you've skewered the canon in ways, but you also reference it very deeply. And then there are very strange references in here to all sorts of things that I did not expect to see. I think the one that stuck out to me the most was an evocation of Justin Bieber's father's thigh. All <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah. Well, I have this image from a Wayne Kersenboom book, Double Talk, of someone being like born out of someone's thigh, which is a Greek thing. Yeah, I think one of the children of Zeus, maybe. Right. Yeah. yeah. Something else I wanted to ask you about is the name of this collection, Google Colia, and perhaps it's too obvious a question, but maybe also there's more to it. Would you like to talk about Google Colia or the screen sickness as I've been thinking of it? Well, as I think I wrote somewhere, be careful what you call things. I was just kind of interested in the different feelings associated with internet, not immersion, but kind of like working on a computer every day and, you know, you might be on Word, but you're going into the internet in various ways constantly. I don't know, like it just popped into my head, Google Collie as a kind of affect or set of feelings or something. And I did have a poem called Anatomy of Google Collie, but that was like the draft title and there was a poem and the poem died and Google Collier emerged. Mm. Some Someone did think that the uh, cover was quite literally sort of like, yeah, death going through the screen which I hadn't thought, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, these poems are all leading to screen sickness kind of in a way rather than um, suffering from, from it. Yeah, so, you know, you can, you can, you know, like I suppose it makes me aware of the great privilege of being healthy enough to, to write and to publish books and use a computer and all the stuff that we need to do every day. Not, you know, not publish books every day, but... Um, we're required to use the internet every day and um, I managed to get this book to my publisher via email but I, at, that, at the point that I submitted it I was not capable really of using computer or, or reading or writing. So luckily I got a chance to revise it and it wasn't posthumous but um, I think maybe I should just read this poem in the library. Not being in a great African institution awaiting destruction, we stand idly watching the rain through the green windows. Whether we need to filter it before we drink it, we're unsure. Perhaps its downward run through leaves is filtering enough. We don't rush out in our best jackets yet to take its measure, nor give more than a shadow thought to droughts elsewhere. We've been surfing for love all the afternoon between books watching sunlight coming in earlier from the declining west. The element of surprise in Love's case would not be strained. We feel it even as we go through the stacks like a character, like a character from another national literature altogether. Look down or fly right over a carpet like a populated plane. Where's a love or death that might motivate such a scheme? Add water to the desert peas, press dry between the pages. Outside the trees are adorned with blossom, as for a wedding. We walked here ourselves and find ourselves on the shelves. Not oblivious to the irony of the quaintness of our position. Knowing books have the strident voices of a gang of lilacs. Yet we packed them in saddlebags for Santiago or Barcelona. Cities brimming with their own sentimental reading rooms. 
but my subject is in the language of an Australian English that means like a kangaroo looks when trying to half sit up and is complicated as native grass growing in a blackberry. Things we see and read and walk through, taking heart from. Thanks, Michael. I am aware that I don't want to drag us on too long tonight, but I am keen to minimise my own talking time and stick to your reading time. There is one poem that I really like you to read, but I do want you to have some say in as well, what you share with everyone here tonight. One that really struck me was the fire at the Pointers Sisters factory. Would you like to read that one? Yeah, sure. This is, you know, this is um, somewhat factually based and David Island based. Fire at the Pointer Sisters factory. Years ago, I worked at a furniture factory. Some people would say then and now that a person who reads books all the time would be better off working at a library. It's all trees, I'd say to them. Being the hirer and firer got me my nickname. I'm not sure if mine came first or fairy tales. The foreman earned that one. We were on and off for most of the time I worked there. He would come home with lipstick in his pocket, porridge in his mo, spinning some yarn about having his tyres stolen. If there were layoffs, I always got fairy tale to give the crew a little speech at Smoko. First he'd mention the bosses, then the law, then the government, then the unions, then the trees, and by the time he got to the koalas, they just wanted to know who was getting the boot and not why. I was learning to sing fairy tale with the town choir for the annual town founding celebrations. There was no ideological point to it. But then the Pointer Sisters nickname started to spread. Should I do it? Shorten to should and jump for my love, mostly just jump. <laughs> Were brother and sister and the song titles seemed to sum up their dispositions and relationship. Automatic, drove an automatic, but once we dubbed them that, Everything else they did and said seemed automatic. So far so literal, but in traditional reverse style, slow hand, slow, was the fastest worker we had and would sometimes make elaborate sculptures out of the wood, disassembling an elephant with an umbrella and reassembling it as a patio bench in the same time it took someone else to just do the latter. He's so shy, shy, was known for pissing in public and general exhibitionism. We tried, I'm so excited, first excited, then I'm, then so, on the secretaries, thinking it might help them be enthusiastic. But it was a kiss of death. After the second quit, we learned our lesson and used it on the dourest person in the place. In retrospect, it was a bit rough, but they stuck around. Still called excited, even though retired to the Sunshine Coast, I've heard. They were the greatest hits, the best of. There were dozens of others I had to wrangle on paper every day and then go home and do the same with fairy tale in person at night. You'd think my name would make me unpopular, but actually the crew used it as an excuse to come up close to me on frosty mornings, rubbing their hands. I guess you can't stop romanticism. And no, we never had an actual fire. I was in charge of workplace safety too. This, as I said, is too long ago. And telling you is how I forget. Thanks, Michael.
I would like to ask if you would, before we finish, to read one more poem for us. And Can I think I another long one. Absolutely. <laughs> there are some shorter ones in the book. If you're worried, but I haven't read this one. I don't think I've read this one aloud. So I'd like to give it a go. It's called Big Blue Play. The main character of the Big Blue Play is the Big Blue Woman. She is played by four actors in blue, but not denim. Visually, then, she is composed of four bodies. But the other factor is that she has four voices. One voice is her dawn voice. It's a bit weak, like first light, a bit husky. The second is her late morning or noon voice, which is solid, no nonsense. The third voice is the afternoon voice, still strong but more relaxed, supple. The fourth is, of course, the evening or night voice, which is languid, softer, not grumpy like a morning voice can be, but having the greatest effective range. The night voice, the afternoon voice, compete in playfulness, irony. These designations relating voice to a particular time are characterizations rather than categorizations. The point about having four voices is not just to have a greater vocal range, but also have the ability to deploy greater force, harmonic impact. Therefore, while the morning voice may speak solo until the other voices have had coffee or tea, they're not alike in their likings. Throughout most of the day, all four voices speak in turn, sometimes at once, as one, while changing the number of voices to two, two, three, two, or one for effect. As the play begins, the big blue woman is waking in her apartment or hotel room. She has come down from the mountains where she is a feared mythological figure to join contemporary urban life. Better get a job, I suppose, she says. The four actors are already dressed, looking at their phones, scrolling, maybe mumbling a quoted phrase in contempt or interest as if this was a normal morning, cleaning their teeth, brushing hair, eating breakfast in no particular order, perhaps changing from one blue outfit into another. They walk into an office. This is, this is my, this is my, my, my. Desk, they say, office, we, I am the new mumble, they say. Out of the windows of the random corporate tower, they see the blue sky, that is me. Us, that is us, they say. That is me, they say. You must be the new mumble, says an actor approaching her, them. Yes, I hope you're good at mumbling. Aha, have you done much mumbling before? Oh yes, we, I, I have mumbled in the cave where I live for the last 3,000 years. Ha, 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 well, you probably won't find this place as fancy as a cave. That's okay. We, I am just happy, cheerful, glad, happy, ha happy to be work, job, jobbing, employed. Yes, well, it's tough out there. The actor motions towards seagulls flying around the windows as if they wanted to get in, either a job or jobber, worker. You must be the new mumble, says another actor later as the four are yawning, stretching around their desk. The sky is no longer blue, them, yeah, we, I, I, R, am, 
Excellent. We need some new blood around here. Confused silence. The big blue woman actors look at each other. Not that we spilled any of the old blood. Ha ha. Ha ha. No, we didn't either. I. I'm the acting boss, actually. I should have introduced myself earlier. Boss of acting? Yes. Ha ha. Boss of pretending to be the boss. Ha ha. Congratulations. Respects. You can be a real boss one day. If you need help, just ask. The big blue woman actors all sip from their water bottles. Right, thanks. Nice dress, by the way. This is not a dress. Thank you. The four big blue woman actors circle the acting boss actor, generally move through the space in a not quite threatening manner. On Fridays, we often go for drinks. Naked Fridays? Ha, 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 your supervisor told me you were witty. We are not used to such wit in our mumbles. We? Any of us. Okay, it is time to leave now? Uh, yes, if the mumbling is all in order. I think it is. I think it is good. 5.01, time to run. They're in the lift looking for a pizza place between the office, the apartment. They order 24 pizzas to their address. Ha, 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 they say when the pizzas arrive. That was too many. I can put them in the freezer. They look at the flat screen TV, watching shows for clues in how to behave, act. They mime some gestures they see, then all notice a reference to boys in blue. They stop eating, mime out the actions of the cop show. I would like to work in that kind of, kind of office. I would like, I would like, yum. I want to eat them. I can taste their teeth. Thanks, Michael. I would like to thank all of you for coming through tonight and I would like to thank Michael for you for coming to read for us and I think we all need to give you a big round of applause for Google Collier. Thanks, Nico. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of the show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my own respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you. <laughs>